All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it to you again. Uh, this is a passage we began to look at last time we were together. We're going to try our best uh, to get through, to ver through verse 10 tonight. Um, uh, for those of you that are listening right now online, we're going to be taking a break for the summer. We won't be coming back into Ephesians again until uh, August, Lord willing. Uh, and this is our last Bible study for the summer because of my travel schedule. So we saw last week that being dead in trespasses and sins meant that they were spiritually separated. People who are dead in their sins are spiritually separated from God, who is life, because of our sin condition. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look further into this sin condition that we were in before salvation, because I believe it will help us to see even more the greatness of God's salvation if we see more clearly our lost or dead condition. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to read Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, and we're going to take our time to kind of really look at what this dead condition really was. And I think a lot of Christians may be a little bit surprised to hear some of the things we're going to look at tonight. Paul says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, <coughs> excuse me, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, like I said, what I want to do tonight is pick up where we left off last time, dealing with being dead in our trespasses and sins. We looked last time at the fact that dead meant just simply separated from God. We still have the ability to respond when God calls us. Some people say that if you're dead, you can't respond. God has to do the whole salvation thing himself. That does not match up with the whole of Scripture. Man has a responsibility to respond. Now, but at the same time, what I also want you to see is look at what Paul says here in chapter 2. He says, we were children of wrath. He says we were deserving of God's wrath because we were rebellious children. We were rebellious against God and we were children of Satan. So I want to take some time to look scripturally at these things that he just how he described us before salvation. We were children of wrath. We were rebellious against God and we were children of Satan. Go to Romans chapter three. <clears throat> now, what I want you to do tonight as we read this, because some of you will say, well, that's a real familiar passage. Actually, a couple of the verses will be familiar. Most of the other ones won't be because very few of us really take the time to go beyond verse 11 of chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. But when we read this tonight, as I read it to you and as you follow along, I don't want you to read the they and the their passages as somebody else. I want you to see yourself before Christ. All right. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Listen to what it says. Paul says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Look closely what Paul said. He's saying that he's been laying out the case that, that uh, the Gentiles, he's talking to Jewish people mainly, he's talking about how the Gentiles were guilty of sin. But then he said, oh, don't think we Jews are any better off. We're all guilty. Everyone, before Christ gives us righteousness, before God gives us salvation, where there's no one righteous, not even one. Well, like I said, we, we have a tendency to read that and say, yeah, I know some people that are really have venom of asp under their lips. And I know some people whose mouths are full of curtain. No, no. Paul's saying this is the condition of all of us. And now I'm going to take some time tonight to kind of really lay this out for you scripturally, because I honestly believe that if you will see the real condition you were in when God saved you, it will help you really fully more appreciate the salvation that you've been given. At the same time, I think you'll also experience a deeper love for the Lord. And I'm going to show you scripturally why that is the case. If you really understand what he has done in your life, because as I'm going to get into in a little bit, there's a tendency in Christendom today to think that God forgave some people more than other people. There's a tendency for people to think, well, I know I needed Jesus forgiveness because everybody's guilty of God's wrath yet. I'm not as bad as those people. And I, well, we're going to head down that road in just a second. Go to John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verses 39 through 45. <clears throat> John chapter 8, starting in verse 39. The people, the Jewish people especially, are talking to and they answered him in verse 39 of John 8. And they said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now, what, look at what Jesus said. And these are to the religious people. He said, your father's who? Well, keep in mind now, go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at what Paul said. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I want that to sink in, folks. 
You might have even been raised in church your whole life. But we have not really been taught in the church to understand the seriousness of sin. That's why you want proof of the fact that most people today in the church don't understand the seriousness of sin. Most of the questions that I would have to deal with as a pastor were people coming and saying pretty much how close to sin can I get? Pastor, if I do this, is it sin? Pastor, if I do this, is it sin? I know the Bible says that it's sin to have sexual relationships with someone outside of marriage. But what about this? Is this okay? And folks, because I don't want to go into the specifics of some of the specific questions and things people listed, let me just tell you, the question was, how close to sin can we get? That means we really don't understand how God views sin. And we don't un fully understand the condition we were in. I actually was preaching at this one church and teaching on this in great detail. And I actually made this statement to these people. I said, according to the scriptures, that when you were before Christ, you were just as guilty in the eyes of God as Osama bin Laden. A lady got up in the middle of that sanctuary and stormed out of the sanctuary, screaming at the top of her lungs. I will not have you put me in the same category as that evil man. Scripture does. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, look at verse 8. For at one time you were what? Darkness. Darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Go to Romans chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. Romans 11, verses 30 through 32. Paul says here in verse 30 of Romans 11, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, meaning the Jews, have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Go to Romans 5. Look at verse 10. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we are reconciled will we be saved by His life? What did the Scripture say we were to God before we were saved? Enemies. We were His enemies. Folks, I want you to hear this. You were children of wrath. You were acting out of your character. Your father was the devil. Because of sin, you were guilty of it. And God had every reason because of his holiness, because of his purity, to just send you to the place of torment because that's the design for Satan and his followers. And every single one of us, because of Adam, and it's passed on down. And you say, well, I'm not really guilty for Adam. Have you ever watched a baby? And did you have to teach it to say mine? Did you have to teach it to hit? Did you have to teach it to bite? Folks, you're just as guilty. If you were in the garden with Adam and Eve, you would have done the same thing. We are all that guilty and we were objects of wrath. We were acting out of our nature and our character and we were deserving of death. The Bible says we were darkness. That's just the way it was. But the problem is, sadly, too many Christians today never fully realize the seriousness of the lost condition before their salvation. You know how you know it? This is some of the things we say nowadays. Oh, I know Bobby's not a Christian yet, yet he's a good boy. Don't we say that? You, you, you ever try to say to a mama, your son's lost? No, no, he's just wayward. He's really a good kid. He's really a good boy. We don't understand our condition apart from Jesus Christ. 
Oh, we know we need Jesus' salvation and forgiveness, but not as much as some other people do. I mean, they're really sinners. So what I want to do is I want to talk about something that you've heard me teach on before, but I want you to see it in the scriptures for yourself. Go to James chapter 2, verse 10. I, you've heard me quote this many times, but I want you to see it. If you haven't marked it in your Bible, memorize it in your heart as well. Because as you share the gospel with people and they think that they're not that bad because they haven't really done that much. Because isn't that the lie the enemy's told the people that don't know Christ? Well, I'm not that bad. I mean, I know everybody breaks God's law, but I haven't done that much. That's for sure. In James chapter 2, look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. Can't be any more clear, folks. The holiness of God is such that if you break one of His commandments, in His eyes you're guilty as if you broke it all. I'm going to just break it down to a real simple illustration for you. What was the sin that Adam and Eve committed that got them kicked out of the garden? What did they do? Disobedience. Okay, but let's, let's just break it down to specifics. They ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Right? Can we just put it down to that's what it was? They ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. Most of us today would say, what's the big deal? People are doing that in the produce department all the time. <laughs> you, ever, you ever notice a few grapes? They'll, they'll never miss them. What do I do with this banana peel? You know? In the eyes of us today, we don't think that's that big of a deal. They ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. It got them removed from the presence of God. Folks, if you're able to keep the whole law, good luck with that. But just break one. You're guilty as if you broke it all. Now, with that in mind, let's now move to Luke chapter 7. Because with that in mind, it will be very helpful for us to really interpret a passage of Scripture that a lot of people have missed. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. <clears throat> it says, one of the Pharisees, Luke 7, 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into, meaning Jesus, went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, is who is touching him, for she's a sinner." And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Now, before you go on, don't miss this. Did, Fer did Simon the Pharisee say anything out loud? No. He was just thinking something in his heart and Jesus knew his thoughts. He said, I got something to say to you. And so the guy goes, say it, teacher. A certain money lender, Jesus says, had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said this to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, listen to what Jesus just said. He said, those who have been forgiven of great debt love a lot. Those who have been forgiven a little bit love a little. But didn't we just agree back from James 2.10 that we're guilty as if we broke it all? Accepting. Yes. The issue that Jesus is teaching here is this. Let me paraphrase it for you. Those who realize they've been forgiven much, love much. Those who don't think they've been forgiven for very much, love little. And folks, I've just described most of the New Testament church today in our era. A lot of us who grew up in church and went to Sunday school and grew up, you know, in a Christian home, we came to understand our need for Christ and God opened our eyes to what Jesus did and we trusted him as our savior. But many of us never really fully understood the depth of our sin. And we don't. And that's why we think some people are worse sinners than us. Oh, we need Jesus forgiveness because, you know, he died for everybody. But I'm not that bad. And folks, it manifests itself in how we worship. It manifests itself in how we live for him. Because really, we love little if we think we've been forgiven little. Now, <clears throat> years ago, I shared this illustration, and I'll share this with you again. Uh, I've had a couple encounters with police officers. One that I'll tell you about, another one that I'll tell you about. Those are the only two I'll tell you about. You can ask me later, and I'll say there were only two. But when I was in Chicago, uh, Becky and I and the kids, I was pastoring there, we decided to go take a train from LaGrange, Illinois to downtown Chicago. They have a Metra train system there. They're double-decker trains. They're beautiful. It's really a lot of fun. And we went to this one parking lot, parked our car, got on the train, bought our tickets, got on the train and rode it down into the city and had a good day, did Navy Pier, and then we came back. As we got back into the van, I had never gone to this train station before and didn't really know how to get out of the parking lot. And I turned the wrong way down a one-way street in this city. Now, I didn't know it was the wrong way until I came face to face with another car who was heading the right way. And so I literally come almost nose to nose with another car. And the person in their car po points to me and says, back up. Now, I believe that this person was right and I was wrong. You know why? because that car had lights on top. <clears throat> and he had a big smile on his face. And so literally we had to back up this wrong, the wrong way, go down the, or the right way now, going backwards down this one-way street, pulled back into the train station. At this point, we realize we're in trouble because Becky says to me, do you have our proof of insurance? <laughs> now, to go back a little bit, <laughs> Becky will do the mail and she will give me the proof of insurance and she'll say, Jim, put this in the car now. <laughs> Being a typical man, I'll say, I'll get right to it. And I put it on the mantle over the fireplace and it sat there for weeks. Now, in Chicago, it's a very, very big deal to not have proof of insurance. They can put you in jail right then for it. Wow. Becky starts to cry because we're, 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 we're dead in the water. We're going the wrong way down a one-way street, come nose to nose with a cop, and we now don't have our proof of insurance. So he comes and he says, to, he opens the window, can I have a driver's license and registration and proof of insurance? And I said, well, we got a problem with the third part. And I explained to him that it was on the mantle 
Becky's sitting there crying, the kids are crying. I'm not feeling too excited. And then the man looks at me and he says, Mr. Johnson, do you love your family? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, then go home right now and get that piece of paper, put it in the glove box of your car and have a nice day. Wow. He gave us grace. Thank God for it. We worshiped God all the way home and I went right to the mantle and put it in the car. I've had another encounter with a police officer though. I had another encounter with a police officer though. When I was down here as pastor in the Atlantic, I was heading one Saturday morning early to go to a golf tournament. It was a fundraiser for Covenant Christian School and they do a hundred holes of golf and it was in the early in the morning and I was on South Patrick, actually Riverside section of it. And you know, it goes from 35 to 25 and so on. I know exactly where it is. And my family will tell you, I drive the speed limit. I don't, I've learned what's, what's the hurry. There's traffic lights. The guy that blows by me, I'll be waiting. He'll be right next to me at the light. And people get frustrated with me because I drive the speed limit. If I go over it, it's three miles an hour, four, five at the most. I mean, I just, I don't drive fast. Just the way it is. Well, that morning, it's about five in the morning. All of a sudden, a police officer pulls in behind me, puts his lights on. I pull into Eastminster Presbyterian's parking lot and said, can I help you? And he said, yeah, do you know how fast you were going? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, you know, the speed limit changes. And I said, yeah, it goes from 35 to 25. And I told him what street. He said, you were going 40. I said, that's not even possible. Because he pulled me over right at the stoplight. Said, I'd have to lock my brakes up in order to be going 40 miles an hour and stop at this light. He said, are you calling me a liar? Oh. I said, no, sir. He said, it's my word against yours. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, I'm going to give you grace. He said, this ticket could be such and so. And he listed how much dollars it would have been. But I'm just going to make it that you were only going so fast and your ticket will be so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, here's the deal. In one condition, in my mind, I knew I was guilty and I was given grace. And I, and I love that police officer. If I met him today, I'd wash his car, I'd walk his dog. This other officer says he gave me grace. I'm still not really sure I needed it. And it changes my attitude. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's even a chance he was right. I'm not saying I've never sped. There are some times I've gone, whoa, look how fast I'm going. I had no idea. We've all been that way. There's even a chance I was guilty, but I didn't think I was. And since I didn't think I was guilty and he gave me grace, I don't think I really needed it, but I ain't stupid. I'll accept it. And I don't have the same kind of love for that police officer. And folks, there are some of you that are listening right now that in the back of your mind, you don't really think you needed it that much. Yeah, we needed some grace. I ain't stupid. I'll accept Jesus' offer of salvation and forgiveness. My prayer is, is that you will understand what Paul's saying here. You, and then he says we, were dead. Children of wrath, deserving of punishment. But God, who is rich in mercy, pursued us in love. After looking at the seriousness of our condition before God's forgiveness through Christ, we can better appreciate the re God's reaching out to us in grace and love. Go back to Romans 5, that passage that talked about how we are his enemy. Go back to Romans 5 and look at verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now we're going to move in this passage in Ephesians. And I'm going to show you a couple other passages real quick. But in this passage in Ephesians to where Paul progresses to, he said, look, don't lose sight of the condition you were in before God gave you righteousness and gave you forgiveness and salvation. You were deserving, you were guilty, but he's rich in mercy and he pursued you and he's offered you forgiveness. And not only that, as you're about to see, as we've already read, he's not only forgiven us, he's seated us in the heavenly realms. We're going to deal with that tonight. He's seated us in the heavenly realms and he's going to show us off and he's going to display his riches toward us for eternity. It moves from this is what we were and we were deserving, but this is all about how awesome God is. This is about how awesome God is. And you know what John 3.16 says, right? For God so loved who? The world that he gave his only son. Go to Titus, though. Go to the book of Titus, chapter 3. If you're not sure where Titus is, it's in the T section of the New Testament. You got 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. The power has Jesus. Titus, chapter 3. Look at verses 3 through 7. I love how Titus puts it. Actually, Paul puts it to Titus. The book of Titus puts it. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you've never seen that passage before, because I'm sure a lot of you have probably never really looked at that section right there. Mark it up. Go back and spend some time just meditating on it and letting those wonderful truths sink into your heart. Now, folks, <clears throat> there's an aspect to God's wonderful grace and his mercy and his loving kindness that has caused some people to move into the Calvinistic type or predestination view of God's salvation. Because let's be honest, it's all about him. How many of us were deserving of what God has done in sending his son to die for us and to offer us forgiveness and to make us his children and to reward us for eternity lavishly, as Ephesians says? None of us were deserving of that. The fact that he offers it shows who he is. That's why it's all about him. But don't move into the realm of thinking that you don't have a responsibility that God either does it or he doesn't do it. No, he's offering it to everyone. And you have to respond. That's why God says, if you will seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. God initiates the game of hide-and-seek. By the way, I don't know if you ever noticed that or not, but salvation's a game of hide-and-seek. God says, I'm here, now you've got to come find me. But the good news is, He's promised, you will find Him if you look. You will find Him if you look. But He's the one who initiates the game. He's the one who pursues us. He's the one. That's why it's all about Him. 
This is why salvation is by God's grace and not our own works. Remember, we were alienated and rebellious. We saw last week that we had a choice, though, and it's by God's grace through what? Through faith. Look closely at that. Go back to Ephesians 2 now and take a look at what it says there in uh, um, verse 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is your part now. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now here is, here's the part that we've got to deal with. People have wrestled over the years and they said, okay, when Paul goes on and says, um, this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Was he talking about this whole aspect of our salvation or was he talking about the faith? Let me read it to you again. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. There are some that say that this faith that you have is not your own doing. God gave you the faith and you responded because God gave it to you. And some say that's what Paul's saying, and that proves that you don't have any say, that if you have faith, God gives it to you, and if you don't have it, God didn't give it to you. But actually, if you were to take the time and do the study and break this Greek sentence down, and this gets into a whole deeper level than some of you probably even care, but the Greek language is very, very specific, and everything's broken into male, masculine and feminine and neuter and all this kind of stuff, and that's one of the ways you can tell in a Greek sentence which is referring to what, because if this is referring to this, they're both gonna have the same gender, masculine or feminine. Do you understand what I'm saying? One of the ways we can know that Jesus wasn't saying back in Matthew 16 that the church was gonna be built on Peter was because when he uses the term rock a couple of times, and he says, you are Peter, Petra, Petra, all right? That actually, Petros, and that actually is in the masculine. When he says, you are Peter, Petros, that's in the masculine. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Petra is in the feminine. So he could not have been saying, upon Peter, I'll build my church, the Petra of on this rock above my church, referring to Peter's profession of his faith. We can see that if you look at it in the Greek. In this sentence here, the, the, the masculine and the feminine, the genders don't line up for it to say that our faith was what God did. It's the whole aspect of salvation. You understand what I'm saying? When you break it down, the way that the, the certain part of it's neuter, the other parts are feminine and masculine, when you look at it, this whole aspect of salvation is not our doing. It's the gift of God. Salvation itself is God's work. God's doing it. But the faith part is still up to you. You understand what I'm saying? I know it's kind of hard. I could get into more detail. We could bring a dry erase board out and I could show you it and write it all out. But I wouldn't even understand it after that either. So we're not going to worry about it. All right. So this has always been a hard balance for us to strike in our minds, though. Does our believing then make it a work? There are some that say, well, if you have faith, then you did something and that's work. And the Bible says that it's not by works, so no man can boast. Let me help you with that a little bit. First of all, faith is not a work on your part unless you're proud of your faith. If you think you're better than somebody because you believe and they don't, then you think your faith is a work. You're wanting credit for what you've done. Right? Worker deserves his wages. If I did something, I want to be rewarded for it. 
But if I understand that all I did was say yes to a wonderful offer that was not deserving of me, I was not even looking for it. God pursued me and he offered this. And I said, yes, wow, honestly, for real, thank you. I didn't do anything. Does God's gift mean we have no say? Yes, you do. You have a say. There's this one preacher named James M. Gray, and he put it best when he wrote it this way. You might want to write this down. I love this. He made it into a little poem. He says, not have I gotten, but, I, but what I received. I'll say that again. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Let me read the whole thing together. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace has bestowed it since I have believed. It's all there together. It's all there together. It's a wonderful thing. But who gets all the glory? God does. Because he's the one who did this. He's the one that's accomplished it. He's the one that's offering it. Your responding doesn't give you kudos. All we do is just say thank you. Well, go to Romans chapter 11. And look at the end of chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. You've heard me quote this over and over, but I want you to see it. <clears throat> Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. NIV puts it, his paths beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Folks, I hope tonight you come to an understanding a little bit more of the depth of your condition when Jesus saved you. I was eight years old in 1973. Actually, since my mom has died, we've been going through pictures from, from you know, my parents' house, and my dad's kind of overwhelmed a little bit by having to do that, so he's given us the task, and Becky's really good at it. So, you know, she gave it to me, and I gave it to Becky. And, and, uh, <laughs> but actually, Becky's been taking all the pictures and putting them into boxes according to which kid they go with. She found the picture of when I was baptized. It's pretty cool. I was a good-looking little kid. <laughs> I've actually taken, hey, we, we, we didn't, we're going to turn the mic off in the crowd if you're going to keep talking like that, Allison. But uh, so, <laughs> we, uh, um, I took that picture and I put it in, actually I have a record of my baptism, my baptism certificate in nine, September of 1973. And I took that picture and put it in there. And uh, what's so cool about it is, is I still remember that day. When I came up out of the water, I literally felt like a piece of stained glass. I literally felt like a piece of stained glass. I felt like the sun was just shining through me. It was just an incredible feeling. I was already saved. But when I was obedient to publicly identify, and by the way, we didn't have a baptistry in our church up in New Hampshire. So when we publicly identified, we actually had to rent the local town beach. And we actually, it was the part where the boats would be able to come in and out at the ramp. And so for that hour, everybody backed up all the 
cars with their trailers and their boats had to wait until our little church was done having our baptism service with our robes and everything. And all the people in the lake, it was chilly, all the people in the lake wanting to come in and get their boats back on their trailers were all sitting out there in the lake waiting. And for that hour, we had the, 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 the boat ramp reserved. And there were all these people standing around and watching us go through the baptism you know, service and everything, which was pretty cool. But folks, let me just tell you, even though I was only eight years old, and I've been raised in a Christian home. It's taken me a while to really understand the seriousness of my condition. I've actually been one of those people that has loved little. Oh, I've tried to love him more, but I didn't fully understand the lostness of my condition. But the more I, by the way, you want to know one of the ways I've come to understand the lostness of my condition? How much I still struggle with sin now after salvation. Man, I thank God he saved me when I was young. Because I struggle today, just like you do, with temptations. And who knows where I would have ended up apart from the grace of God and Jesus living inside of me. And as I have grown and really come to understand my flesh, you know what? Yeah, I might have been eight years old, but I was just as guilty as Osama bin Laden. And it's really made a difference in my worship of the Lord. Like I said in Ephesians 2, though, in verses 7 and 8, there's a statement that we need to look at. God has raised us up with Christ and has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, we've got to clarify what this term heavenly places is. And by the way, as you're about to see, it's actually used by Paul a lot in the book of Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's take a look at what these heavenly places are. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, it hasn't fully clarified for us where this is. Go to Ephesians chapter 3, look at verse 10. Starting to help us a little bit more when you see this verse, Ephesians 3 verse 10. So that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. You start to understand what the heavenly places is? The heavenly places is referring to the spiritual realm where God is. Of course, God's everywhere. But of course, he dwells in the spiritual realm. And that's where the angels are. That's where the demons are. That's where the spiritual authorities are, good or bad. When he's talking about us being raised up and seen with Christ in the heavenly places, he's talking about the spiritual thing that has been accomplished in us, that we are not only living on this earth in a physical realm, because we have spirits and because God is spirit and he's living within us and we have now been put in Christ and we're forever in Christ. Where Christ is, is in the spiritual realm and in our physical realm in the spirit. That's where we are. We've been raised up and seated with him. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verse 12. You'll see it even more clearly. It says, we don't wrestle, Ephesians 6, verse 12, we don't wrestle against, the flesh, against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly places. When he's talked to us being raised and seated in the heavenly places, he simply, a lot of us have read that over the years, and myself a little bit, and thought that that just meant heaven. No. To be really honest with you, and I don't want to mess with your head too much, but... The final resting place called heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, doesn't exist yet. It hasn't been created. It hasn't been made. There's an intermediate heaven right now. Those who have died, my mom who just went to be with the Lord on, on uh, uh, Easter Sunday, 
she's with God and she's in heaven in a sense. She's in the presence of God. She's in what the Bible calls the third heaven or paradise. She's in the presence of God. But it's just an intermediate heaven. Because remember, those who are with Christ when he comes back are going to come with him. And those of us who are caught up at the time, if we're alive during the rapture, are going to go be with the Lord. We're going to go be with him. But then after a time period, we're going to come back onto this earth for a thousand years. And then at the end of that is when the new heaven and the new earth are all created and the eternal state. Oh, by the way, and the eternal state's actually not going to be in some ethereal spiritual thing. It's going to be on an actual planet made by God, a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be where God dwells with us. I don't know if a lot of people think, well, one day when I die, I'm going to go be with God. Well, you will be temporarily, but actually the eternal state, the place where you're going to spend eternity is actually God's going to come hang out with you. Like he did in the garden. You go look at Revelation 22. It says, now the dwelling of God is with men. That's just a commercial for September. If you want to, we'll get into a lot more detail about that. It's going to be a lot of fun. We were raised with Christ, though. And in Christ Jesus and through his resurrection, we are now, because of the fact that we're in Christ, you are right now in the heavenly places. In Christ. Now, that's really hard for us because, again, our physical bodies only see, smell, taste, and touch this realm. Now, God, once in a while, as we see in Scripture, has let other people see the other side. As Billy Graham says, it could be in this room. We just keep thinking it's up there somewhere. But you realize if it's up there, it's down there to China. You ever thought about that? You know, we keep, everybody, if everybody thinks it's up there, it's going to be down there for somebody on the other side of the planet. Actually, Billy Graham says there could be a huge chain big enough to hold a tanker that could be running right through this room right now and you would never know it if it's in this other dimension. And by the way, some of you scientists people, they're starting to come to realize there's more than just the dimensions we think. They're actually possibly like six, seven, eight, some even think 10 different dimensions they're starting to realize. That makes my head hurt. I know this much. <laughs> there is a spiritual realm. We believe that, don't we? Because we're believing in a Jesus we've never seen. At the same time, he's right, can't see gravity, but it's real. Here's the thing. Because you are in Christ, and this is very important where we're going to go next. Because you are in Christ, you are connected with him, and he's in you, and you're in him, and you are now in that realm. And remember how the Bible said, we've already seen this earlier, we're on a bigger stage than just doing your good deeds before men on the earth. The angels are watching. We just saw in Ephesians 3.10 that God's intent that is now through the church who he is will be made known to the spiritual authorities in the heavenly realms or the heavenly places. Folks, I want you to really start moving beyond this life. And one of the ways we'll know that we get focused on this life is just look at your prayers. Don't we spend most, if not all of our prayer, just really talking about what's happening to us. Lord, I need this. I need a new tire or this is going on or sure could use a job or these types of things. How many of us ever really pray about the spiritual realm? I mean, because you're there too. How many of us are really considering that? You go look at Jesus' prayers. Most of his prayers were focused on that realm, not this one. You go read John 17, where he's praying for his disciples. Oh, he talks about protecting them for the little bit of time that they're on the earth. He's actually spending most of his time saying, I want them to be with me where I'm going to be, and I want them to see my glory. Oh, and I can't wait to go back to where we've been. Folks, that's where Jesus was focused. That's where he set his mind on things above. Isn't that what the Bible tells us to do? Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> if you've been seated with Christ in the spiritual realm, 
I, I want you to move away from the NIV translation. The NIV, and I'm not, I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying in the way that it translates this passage. The NIV translation says in the heavenly, in, in the heavenly places. Been seen with Christ in the heavenly places. And we just think heaven. We think the eternal resting place. We're, we're going to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. But I want you to see that when it talks about us being seated with Christ in the heavenly places, that it's actually dealing with the spiritual realm where Jesus is right now. All right. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. Peter says, concerning, sorry, let's back up. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, testing, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Where should our focus be? Where is our salvation being held? Who's hanging on to it for us? What should our focus be? It should be on the spiritual realm and what God has promised. We're to set our hope fully on that. We're to live in this world focused on the life to come. But haven't most of us grown up with that silly phrase, well, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know what so that's sad is? That sounds so true but it's not true biblically. The Bible says if you're truly focused on the things of the life to come, you will be what you're supposed to be in this life. What did Jesus say? Don't store up treasure down here. You're stored up where? In heaven. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Set your hope partially on what's to come, fully on what's to come. Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 4. <laughs> if you have been raised with Christ, Paul says we were if we're in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are where? Isn't it sad how many of us can quote so heavenly minded, no earthly good? And it doesn't even match up with scripture. 
Most of the stuff we heard in the church, folks, growing up, most of the stuff that we heard, most of the stuff that was said was so man-focused and man-centered and didn't even match up with Scripture, and we didn't even know. Many of us believe that God helps those who help themselves. We grew up believing that. When the Bible says that's the exact opposite. Like I told you, our purpose of this study in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians is come into this room and let's just pretend we haven't learned anything and let's relearn over what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Folks, we need to be living our lives in such a way that we are focused more on what's to come. By the way, that's going to affect how we handle our money, whether or not we're storing it up for ourselves or whether or not we're putting it into the things of the kingdom. That's going to affect how we look at the different stuff that happens. Because when stuff happens, and if you've been alive in this world, you know stuff happens. Jesus said in this world you will have trouble. Our reaction is going to be in line, line with our understanding of who we are in Christ and who's actually in control. Or when we lose sight of all that, we freak out and we worry and we fret and we... Start looking at things with man's eyes. Yes, ma'am. It'll definitely change how we love people because now we're going to start to see them as God does instead of, well, the Bible says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but a lot of times we look at them as just flesh and blood and we don't see the spiritual aspect or the spiritual realm. That's one of the things I've been telling pastors as I've given the privilege to travel the country and encourage pastors is I'm telling them to calm down and, and be a little more patient with their folks. Because I know how many people say, oh, if they only did this more and if they only did this and what if they get off that back pew and all this stuff. And I've asked many of those pastors, I said, tell me your story. Tell me how you came to Christ. And then they'll say, oh, for a while I didn't even know who God was or for a while. I, but later on in my life, God called me into ministry. I said, so you sat on the back pew for a while? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, for quite a few years. And I said, and God was patient with you. Why can't you be patient with them? Keep encouraging, keep offering, keep teaching, keep loving, but stop trying to twist their arm. Stop getting mad at them because they're not there yet. Stop trying to do God's work. Love them. Hey, as your kids get older, did you beat them up when they hadn't been able to tie their shoe the first time? No. They'll get there. You'll get there. It's when you had incorrect expectations that you actually tended to be a little too hard at times. You want some of the best examples of living in this world, but with our mind on what's to come? Go to Hebrews 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 10, then verses 13 through 16, and 24 through 26. I'm going to say that again. To Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. 13 through 16 and 24 through 26. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith. Talking about the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As I was reading that, the thought went through my head just now that I never thought about before. I was contrasting how they went to this place and they were looking for the home that God had for them. And I was thinking about all the Jews coming out of Egypt saying, let's go back to Egypt. How many of us wish for the good old days? Stop it. They weren't as good as you thought. And if you really understand who you are in Christ, the good ones are still to come. Because everyone, His mercies are new every morning. <clears throat> when you say, boy, those were the good old days, you're actually saying that the good old days are past and they're not going to be any good days now. You're actually saying God was good to you in the past, but He won't be good to you in the future. Yeah, you've already had the best you are. No, folks, man, the best is yet to come. Don't even listen to that book that says you can have your best life now. All right, Hebrews 11. Some of you know who I'm talking about. 24 through 26. Listen to what it says there. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's something for you to spend some time and look at. For he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? He saw being reproached with Christ and an exile and considered tied with those slaves, even because they were God's people, as of more value, greater wealth than all the stuff that he had in Egypt. Boy, that'd be a tough one for us. <clears throat> you know why? You know how I can prove it to you? You would be amazed how many people have come to me over the years and said, Pastor, if you'll just pray that I win the lottery, I promise to give so much to the church. <laughs> You would be amazed. Isn't that interesting? I never had anybody say, if, we win the if I win the lottery, I'll give it all to God. They promised a good 1%. <laughs> <coughs> Folks, if we live patiently down here, trusting in God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in grace, this same abundantly generous God will show off the riches of his grace in Christ to us for eternity. Let me read that to you again. If we live patiently down here, trusting in the God who is rich in mercy and abounding in grace, this same abundantly generous God will show off the riches of his grace in Christ to us for eternity. He wants to. He can't wait. And as we're going to see in the rest of our study when we come back in August, in the rest of our study of Ephesians, our eternal reward that God desires to lavish upon us, listen closely, is also tied to our obedience to His specific plan that He desires to work through us in these days down here. We'll wrap up here now in Ephesians 2. Look at verse 10 again. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't want you to miss this, and we'll get into this in a lot more detail when we come back. God has a specific plan that He wants to walk in your life and in mine. It's not going to be the same. God wants, there are truths of His Word, but the specifics of the life that He has for you and the life that He has for me is going to be different. The ministries that He has for you, the ways that He's gifted you, it's all going to be different. The results are going to be different. 
We've got to get away from man's way of looking at things and measuring results, or oh, I'm not as good at it as so-and-so is. You might not have even supposed to be doing what so-and-so is doing. And even if you're gifted in the same area, that doesn't mean that you're going to have the same results. You've got to trust all that to God. But listen to what I said here again. The God that desires to reward or lavish us is tying these rewards and this generousness to our obedience to his specific plan that he desires to work through us in these days down here. So that's where we're going to come when we come back. We're going to get really looking into what is God's plan for your life and what's his plan for my life when it comes to doing those good works. Thank God for our salvation. Thank God that he was rich in mercy and he's offered us love and forgiveness when we didn't deserve it. Thank God that he's put us in him and he's going to reward us for eternity. But guess what? When you got saved, you didn't disappear. You stayed here. Why? I mean, if he was just saving us so that he could add us to his list of people for his glory for eternity, why don't we just go to heaven the moment we die? We'd be able to know who really trusted Christ, by the way, when they walked an aisle, you know. Why are we still here? Because a part of God's plan is to re reveal his glory through us now and to shape us for eternity and to actually give us the opportunity to build up reward. Heaven is not your reward. Heaven's a gift that is offered to everybody. Reward is something that you actually get to work for if you learn how to let him do it through you. And you only do what it is he has for you. You could spend the rest of your life in an orphanage in India. But if it wasn't what God had for you to do, guess what? You get no reward and you get no points for it. It's be wood, hay, and stubble. What's that? We need to know what it is that he has for us. Oh, and guess what? He'll show you. Oh, yeah. And we're going to get into all that as we take a look. As we move on in Ephesians, that's where he's going to begin to go. He's left us off with where his workmanship and created Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for each of us to do. He's got a plan for each of us and what he wants to do. As we go into when we come back in, in, in August, we will get into the specifics of that and how it's to make, make, be made known to us. But until then, keep reading your Bibles between now and August. And I look forward to seeing you, and we'll send you emails out letting you know where it's going to be. Let me pray for us, and we'll get right to you. Father, thank you so much for this chance to study your word. We thank you for, man, the, the wealth of, of wonderful stuff that's there. If we take the time to read it, to look at it, to dissect it, and allow your spirit to show us how the whole book, when we look at it together, talks about each of these things. Father, thank you for the excitement we get in our spirit when we really start to realize what your word really says, instead of some of these cutesy but very, very wrong sayings that we've been growing up with most of our lives in the church. Lord, help us to unlearn and to learn truth. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.